0: producing a, a book, a novel uh, that uh, cleans out all probably all these less interesting uh, elements of the law and gets the student directly to what is the most interesting part like a trial like um, All the difficulties that a lawyer may encounter all the ethical dilemma that a lawyer face yeah. in most of his cases uh, is, 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 is great for a student. It's is very important is, and it's inspirational, uh, which is some of the most important elements for when, you, when one is studying law, to be inspired by stories, uh, not only of your professors, but only uh, stories about other lawyers and nobles' Narrative bring us that opportunity. That was
1: Edgardo Muñoz. This is the Rodolfo Rivas Project and it's my podcast. Edgardo Muñoz is a law professor at my alma mater, Universidad Panamericana of Guadalajara. Edgardo wears many hats, including arbitrator and author. Although we have many comments in France and were both in Switzerland around the same time, we just recently met. Edgardo keeps very busy, and I find we have many common interests, explaining why we had a great conversation. Conversation, Edgardo talks about his early interest in literature, pursuing a legal career, and how this took him to the UK and Switzerland. The literary bug beat him early on, and he has written a couple of novels, with his latest being influenced by his time as an associate working with banks in Switzerland. He then returned to Guadalajara, and has been a full-time professor ever since. He uses his novels as part of his teaching curriculum, and talks about how storytelling engages with his students. He also juggles raising his family with his wife and growing, and a growing practice as a lawyer. We could have talked for hours, and in fact, we did. But for now, I hope you enjoy this conversation. If you enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by liking, subscribing, and or reviewing. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms, and you can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Spread the word with your friends, or why not, with your enemies as well. The more, the merrier. Edgardo, good morning, how are you? Uh,
0: Very good, very good, uh, Rodo. Nice to meet you and a pleasure to be a guest of your uh, podcast.
1: Thank you very much for accepting my my invitation. It's nice to be back in the university.
0: Well, Universidad Panamericana is is your alma mater, also your home, so you're always welcome here.
1: Thank you very much. I I was thinking on my way here uh, to talk to you, that you seem to be like... um, like a law professor in the anglo-saxon tradition. Is that, would you say that's accurate?
0: Well, uh, my undergraduate law studies uh, happened here in Mexico, Uh, but um, afterwards I did two masters in the common law jurisdiction, and uh, although my PhD was in the University of Basel in Switzerland, that is uh, a civil law university tradition, I've been involved in comparative law, in comparative law since that time, comparative law of obligations in particular. And I think the common law approach to education, um, combined with some of the traditional teaching also in the civil law jurisdictions, is a good mixture, yes.
1: So you, you think that you like, found a right balance between the two of them?
0: I guess I did, I guess I I like, for example, the Socratic discussion method of common law jurisdictions. Um, I also like the the civil law um, tradition of going back to principles and how these principles cover in the abstract, different factual scenarios. Uh, I also like the case, uh, case law-based or approach uh, of teaching. So I think uh, both traditions can cross-fertilize each other and be used uh, in an effective way to teach. I have actually an article called the CSG, which is the International Sale of Goods Convention, yeah. as an instrument to teach comparative law. And it's because in some of the international instruments, we found um, influences of both traditions yeah. and they can serve us to to breach differences in specific legal areas, in this case, in the law of contracts.
1: Wow, that's, that's pretty interesting. And I've also seen that this seems to be like a wider trend uh, across the not only here in North America, but across like uh, the way to teach law in Mexico. Yes. Have you also seen that?
0: I, I guess some professors are, are using international law um, because it reflects, uh, let's say, the most sophisticated or state-of-the-art uh, reflection of, of of current law, yeah. or what law should aim to be, at least domestic law. So I think, uh, yes, it, it, it's been happening and you know, uh, especially in Mexico, many law professors have their LLMs or, or, or postgraduate degrees in the United States, and there is a, a flow of, of legal ideas every day between American and Mexican lawyers. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's that's pretty, that's, that's pretty unique situation, I think, in Mexico due to our closeness to the U.S., but uh, I'm glad to see that it's happening more. I, I didn't have it when I was studying
0: here. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs>
1: But, uh, so you, you've studied a lot, um, let's see if this, uh, when you go back, when you were growing up, you, you were born around here. I was, here. I
0: was born here in, in, in the area, I mean, I was born in the city of Guadalajara, uh, but I grew up in a, in a town which is close to this city. I was educated here, uh, but at the age of 15 I moved to Leon, so I did my high school there. Uh, and my uh, university law degree there at Universidad Iberoamericana uh, which is also a national university here in, in Mexico um, was, uh, during my time there I spent one year in France as an, a student exchange okay. uh, at a student exchange program uh, that opened my, my view of what was uh, comparative law since, since that time and uh, while well, when I was there, I also learned about uh, the moot competitions that were going on around the world in especially in the field of commercial arbitration. Uh, and once I was back, I enrolled a team from my local university at the Bill C. V. Smoot. And that was a, a, another a very good experience that later on uh, became key in what I do today. Yeah, this uh,
1: the the courts. I think that it's a really a really creative way to teach you more in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, but to teach you how to think like a lawyer and to think like fast on your feet.
0: Yes, that's correct. I actually have wrote in a uh, written an article on, on on how mood competitions enhance um, the students' capabilities to put uh, the theory into practice and uh, how they get um, involved in, in, in these um, international problems and start thinking outside national law uh, and in the same way how international law helped them to understand their domestic law. So it's, it's a very good exercise. And this is, this is at the level of probably the skills that they acquire, um, but also all the social and professional network that they, yeah. they built in these competitions. Um,
1: but you, you, at one point, you didn't want to be a lawyer. You wanted to be a, a, a writer, or?
0: Yeah, before, before starting my law st- studies, I, I did three semesters of, of literal, literature and philosophy. That's, that's the name of the undergraduate degree here in Mexico so I intended to to become a writer a writer of fiction I since the age of 13 I I was very keen on on reading uh, all the Latin American literature that belongs to the boom uh, movement uh, with writers like uh, Juan Rulfo from here uh, Cortázar from Argentina Borges of course but also um, writers like um, which actually are, came later like José Saramago which is one of my favorites from Portugal, yes Yeah,
1: um, but then you decided to become a lawyer, what uh, happened?
0: yeah, well I think um, during my time at uh, the Liter- literature and philosophy uh, school I realized that um, law would uh, could offer uh, also a very a lot of richness and, and material probably to uh, uh, to write and to know more about social uh, human behavior. And that was a natural a natural uh, movement move, especially because my intent, which I was wrong, to, <laughs> to, to join the uh, literature and philosophy school was that I wanted to write. But while I, while I was there I realized that uh, there were very few, Workshop or opportunity to really put into practice my writing skills.
1: Yeah, actually, it was more like a critical approach, no, to to understand it, but not so much to do it.
0: Yes, uh, this type of degrees, uh, you learn or or teach you more about um, history, theory, uh, linguistics, but not uh, much about writing. Obviously, you must develop or you can develop it while you... But that's uh, on your own. But that's on your own, yes.
1: Yeah. Actually, now that you bring that up, I've been toying around with the idea of doing an MFA in creative writing. That's a next uh, project of mine.
0: Yeah, I think writing can serve you for many purposes, and one of, uh, of the things I I've, I've found in writing is that it's also a, a nice therapy it's a nice therapy, it's a way to communicate with people and as you know, I I have produced two novels in Spanish that are are, or work uh, done, created uh, for my students Um, I have a a first novel on the history of the common law it's complete narrative uh, going back to the year of uh, 1617 and uh, uh, is it yes. like
1: a, a thriller? A
0: mystery? It has a lot of mystery in that, in that yes, uh, a, a lot of mystery in that novel. Mm-hmm. But uh, what you learn is basically uh, the rich system in the common law and at a time where all was indeed um, uh, all, all, all this um, practice of the law, uh, at the most sophisticated way as series today was was based in london in the course of westminster hall uh, and the link the ins, of course were at the best moment yeah and
1: how how have you seen your students is, you write it for everyone but you also discuss it here with your students in the law school is that correct
0: yes that was the main purpose
1: and and how have you found your students Reacting to these are they more engaged with the topics?
0: Yeah, that's it um, at the beginning. It was uh, I was Doubtful that they will like to have a novel instead of a textbook a traditional textbook uh, <laughs> Is
1: this the only material that you use or is yeah for,
0: for for the comparative law class I use I use two narrative books and I uh, Yes, that's the only material I have. Guest speakers, guest lecturers. I have obviously other um, alternative materials. They can read in the traditional way. Uh, a common law, a comparative law course um, uh, from authors like Kotz and Siegert, um, which is very very known worldwide. Uh, but mainly those two novels. Yes.
1: And what has been your their reaction? Did you
0: very good? They yeah. like it. They like it pretty much and actually I wrote an article, a scientific article on a survey I carry out with my students uh, that um, collected their perception on how easy or interesting or engaging this type of narrative was compared with a traditional textbook. Uh,
1: Well, I became a lawyer for many reasons, but one of the reasons was because of narrative books. I... I read John Grisham and I I was fooled a bit because when I wanted to become a lawyer I thought it was a lawyer more like in the like in the books that it was more like an oral than a mystery (laughs) and pretty soon I found out that it was not like that (laughs) but that's why I became a lawyer through narrative, through storytelling so I I think that storytelling has like a wide uh, use that can influence a lot of the way that we think and the way that we perceive things
0: yes I think narrative is very powerful and it is a, a, a shortcut to what may be the most interesting uh, part of the law because law is very anthropologically yeah. rich it's all about human behavior and and in real practice obviously uh, you is a process most of the time uh, or, or there is a lot of Reading or discussions of things that may not be that interesting, but at the end of the day, is, is about human history, uh, human interests, uh, individual uh, f- uh, fates and and producing a, a book, a novel uh, that cleans out all probably all these less interesting elements of the law and gets the student directly to what is the most interesting part like a trial like um, all the difficulties that a lawyer may encounter all the ethical dilemma that a lawyer face yeah. in most of his cases uh, is 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 great for a student is is very important and is inspirational which is some of the most important elements for when, you, when one is studying law, to be inspired by stories, uh, not only of your professors, but only uh, stories about other lawyers and novels, narrative, bring us that opportunity.
1: And you, you wrote a second novel because you saw how, how useful this was for your classes or, or what was the reason behind
0: it? Yeah, it was a personal need. The second novel is called De la Torre. Uh, whistleblower would be the translation and it's it's a bit bi uh biographical in the sense that it was inspired by um
1: there is always a need to tell like our own stories no
0: oh yes <laughs> yes but uh make a yeah. a bit make because yeah, yeah. you know you are gonna clean all non interesting elements <laughs> so um and and Delator uh, whistleblower is about uh, a time that I spent doing bank law reviews, uh, or bank reviews. Uh, in twenty thirteen, different Swiss banks were indicted by the DOJ in the United States. These yeah. were Swiss banks, and some lawyers in the firm I was working. We were not supposed to be doing that, but because there was a huge need or demand and in my case because I had the Spanish language abilities were assigned to these bank reviews. And the idea was to um, read the documents and assess, determine which of those bank accounts from the whole bank were uh, taxpayers in the United States. It could be obviously uh, persons, physical persons, could be trust it could be uh, companies uh, and and while doing that I, I learned many interesting things uh, that the uh, this job represented a huge challenge for me for many reasons it took me back in many ways to my childhood uh, which sounds very weird right? I have a bank <laughs> review uh, <laughs> would uh, take a lawyer back to the child but but that probably was the case because uh, i was a part of a team with many uh, interesting lawyers from all over the world that at some point became very close and i shared with them many of my uh, childhood memories yes
1: yeah actually after this this happened with the us like it's very difficult for an american to open an account in switzerland like they have to Show so many things before they can open an account, and only some banks are willing to do that.
0: That that's correct because after that, uh, there there were several agreements made uh, by the U.S., Switzerland, and other countries that require now full disclosure of yeah of the people behind companies and trusts.
1: And I think that this is also like a broader push that we see across every every institution in the world, like for more corporate governance, for more transparency. Or more accountability which i think it's uh, it's good
0: yes it's good compliance has become uh, fortunately very important uh, low area uh, it's a uh, it's part of the business cost or, there
1: actually was something that didn't exist or at least maybe it existed but it was not something widely talked about when i was going to when i was starting law
0: no 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 i think this is more recent especially in 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 the developing world but also in in many areas for example uh in sports law matters and if we switch to uh, international sports federation you see the movement at fifa at the international olympic committee and i said this because as you know i am a member of the appeal tribunal of the international gymnastics federation and Many of the issues and cases that are brought to, to us are um, compliant issues. Yeah. Yeah, the way um, tournaments, yeah, world championships are assigned to countries um, and different corporate matters um, are now subject to strict compliance ethical rules.
1: Um, You are interested in gymnastics because you did gymnastics when you were.
0: I I did gymnastics when I was a kid here um, at the local gymnasium. And as you know, Guadalajara is is a good place for sports in general, it's the capital of sports in in Mexico. Uh, But um, my encounter with gymnastics was rather accidental. Uh, It it happened in around uh, 2012, I believe, 2012, when. I was working, again, in a law firm in Switzerland in as a commercial arbitration practitioner, but uh, in the sports law arbitration group as well. And there was this big case... So
1: this was something that you were interested in? Or it just happened to be there like with the bank... Uh...
0: Uh, review. No, no, no. The sports, the sports law matters. It was, You've would been interested in. I, I, I was, I was interested in sports, and obviously, sports arbitration is, is something that always appeals many, many people, right? Yeah. Lawyers, but uh, it was more accidentally that um, I had to uh, substitute one of the lawyers who was f- uh, uh, fully focused on this matter in a case that involved like 50 international gymnastic judges uh, judges in competitions I mean and they were accused of corruption and the law firm I was working at was representing them before the internal adjudicatory bodies of the International Gymnastic Federation it was a huge case uh, because many countries were accused of um, promoting this, this type of corruption between judges in particular they were accused of of uh, obtaining the exams results for becoming or renewing their uh, judge statutes, status. So um, that was my first encounter. And after that, I, I, I had some other cases where I advise athletes or judges. I was no longer working in, in, in this law firm, but in, in a way I, I, I was um, one of the lawyers that some federations would uh,
1: seek,
0: uh, advice. Yeah, seek advice from. And, and eventually there was this opportunity to apply to be now on the other side of the, of, of the court of the room and I became a judge of the, or a member of the Appeal Tribunal of the Gymnastics Federation. And now
1: that we have the Olympics, uh, well, uh, gymnastics is one of the flagship, I think, uh, events at the Olympics. And what are your thoughts on what's going on uh, with some of the athletes? at the highest
0: level well um it's been very interesting yeah. it's been very interesting uh, and and as you as you have seen um things ha- have been changing in many ways in a sports as well um, there is a focus now or an, uh, on safeguarding protecting athletes uh, there have been different incidents some of them even scandals were in gymnastics world in particular where uh, in the past some athletes uh, gymnasts were abused psychologically uh, physically and even sexually and um, this this cause or this uh, uh, yes this cause that the International Federation uh, take steps to prevent as much as possible these incidents to happen. And they created the um, um, Gymnastics Ethics Foundation. And this is an independent body that uh, investigates and internally, in a way, prosecutes all these incidents of non-intentional violence, uh, harassment, or intentional violence. And at the Olympic Games, we have uh, seen um, cases where athletes, for the first time, simply um, recognize uh, or uh, decide to do not compete because they are under psychological pressure that in the past would have been impossible
1: yes, unthinkable in the past Uh, yes and it was happening for sure but we just something that we didn't the athletes were not given the opportunity to because it would show weakness
0: exactly, that would show weakness uh, there would be a spell from the squad national team. Uh, it would be sanctioned and and and, uh, and forgetting all the stress they they got through and um, all these things, um, uh, Thanks God, this has changed. It has changed now because there is now a strict policy and rules on protecting safeguarding and taking into account at the end of the day the interest of the athlete and also his post-sports life yeah. which is very important yes
1: i i love sports as well and one of the reasons why i love sports is because i think it shows humanity at at its best like uh, if you see like what what athletes have done they're always they're always moving society forward for example with racism in the us like the the sport in the sports world was what was pushing everything forward, uh, in baseball, in basketball, and it seems that that's happening again with the attention to mental health, um, and all of these uh, pushing boundaries. Uh, what do you think would be the next step after this, when when all the athletes are doing this for for society in general?
0: Yes, I think. Um I've been actually thinking about this and, and things are, are changing in many countries. There is, uh, the athletes are, are, are better care. Uh, there is protection. There are safeguarding policies in many of the national federations. However, um, this is not uniform and there are still some countries that do not pay much attention because they are culturally different. Uh, sports or athletes are like modern warriors yeah. you know if you think about it's this greek it, yeah. greek wars or uh, is 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 the best now way to um, uh, to show nationalism to show pride i think it's the best way because it's done in a in a peaceful way Uh, But, of course, there are interests around uh, the performance of the athletes and some countries put lots of pressure. Not only money, but also pressure. And I am afraid that in some jurisdictions, there may be sort of neglecting heavens where um, some athletes uh, will succeed, will achieve many sport accomplishments, but at the expense of their own protection. Yeah. Or, or long-term wellness. Uh, and this is because um, the International Olympic Committee or the International Sports Federation's resources and capabilities may not be enough to monitor the way athletes are trained, the way athletes are uh, motivated to succeed. And what
1: about... what's your What are your views on... Athletes and politics, do you think that should be separate or do You think that there's a way that athletes, because they're human beings and they're living society that they can express their views But do you think that there should be a division or how do you view this? Uh,
0: I think it's impossible, especially in um, a professional sport to separate politics from sports uh, One reason is that many sports still uh, depend and are subsidized by government resources, right? And so, um, in a way, uh, the society expects national athletes to perform at a level of their resources. They invest on them. And on the other way, also... um, Society in general expects governments to invest on sports. No, now that the Olympics are going on, and Mexico is not doing as expected, there is lots of criticism uh, towards the current government because mm. of the financial resources they have invested were much less than in previous years. Right? Or, mm. or and and so it's. I think it's it's, it's impossible. But um, governments. I think need to um, be ready, prepare, uh, to ensure that an athlete um, is provided with the uh, assistant, uh, psychological and physical assistance that it needs. It needs to, to compete in a safe environment, and not to exercise undue pressure on them only because they have been sponsored yeah. by government resources. Now
1: let's go back to a bit of uh, academics. One of the things that I enjoy the most is talking to young students who are just starting their careers because they're just so full of passion. They're so talented. And sometimes I feel that in my daily job, like I become a bit jaded. And I look at them and they have like so many ideas that just like reinvigorizes my love for the law and for everything. You're in contact with these students like every day. Like, how, how do you see this?
0: Uh, for me, being a, a full-tenure professor, professor is, is a great thing. And it's basically because of what you just mentioned. Uh, students uh, have a lot of energy, enthusiasm, and uh, it's impossible that you don't get, you don't get it. You don't get, in a way, infected by no. by their youth, by their love, by um, their passion to discover, especially when they are keen on discovering what you are doing, right? Because I have, I trained a team for the BeatSmooth competition. And 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 uh, I, as you know, I'm a member of the CAG Advisory Council. This is like, a, for me, it's a, and for many in this field, is like a top a top position as one of the people who influence the way this convention should be applied and interpreted. So um, they expect a lot of me and probably much more than what I could offer as uh, holding this important position. But in a way, they push me. They push me to keep uh, learning, to be ready to advise them, to be ready to counsel them, to be ready to provide them with the quality uh, information of the quality they require to, to um, succeed in this, this type of competition. So I, I love it, I, especially when I am closely involved in the training of a student. Uh, obviously lecturing is, is an important part and uh, also lecturing teaching um, force you to be updated yeah.
1: in,
0: in what you are gonna, in what you are gonna say. But I, I, I think there is even more value when you act as a tutor or as a coach for a small group of students where you can probably exercise more influence on their future development.
1: And how have you seen the... What changes do you foresee for the, in the short term and in the long term for teaching with what has happened with the pandemic that a lot has migrated towards virtual platforms? Do you see this as a plus? Or how do you view this?
0: No, I think there is a great challenge, especially for um, uh, Socratic discussions, as I practice them. I think the virtual doesn't replicate. Em- yeah the virtual environment does doesn't help much in the proximity that the professor must have with students while while discussing text. Uh, and their views on, on some texts because of different reasons. But uh, one one particular reason is that uh, students are more exposed to distractions, right? On the other hand, well, we will have to evolve and find new ways of getting their attention, their engagement. And this will also require that we use technology, uh, different exercise. Uh, there are different platforms that uh, offer, you know, quiz mm-hmm. or... Small trivia games, etc., etc. That, for law, was something not used in the past or unthinkable in some ways in the past, especially for for the traditional Socratic discussions.
1: I I work in diplomacy, and this is something that we face because diplomacy is a very traditional field, and a lot of the negotiations have to happen face to face, because that's where you can actually sense and you can find places where you can where there can be some flexibility this doesn't translate really well to virtual platforms but on the other hand i think that it has also enriched the way that we do business one of the ways that i've seen for example specifically in diplomacy is that there is no the division between capitals the ones who make the decisions is, is, uh, is not as big as it was before. Mm-hmm. So decisions can happen. The flexibility might not be there yet, but decisions can happen faster. This involvement, I think, I don't see virtual platforms replacing anytime soon diplomats, ambassadors, but I do see it as being something complementary that can help. And perhaps, I don't know, like for teaching, perhaps it can also allow the possibility for Experts that may not be here in Guadalajara to be involved in teaching.
0: Oh, yes Now the the possibility to have guest speakers guest lecturers has uh, Increased a lot. I mean now it's possible and I've been used I'm, I'm taking um, This opportunity uh, in, in many of my courses in particular in the comparative law course in the first semester of the pandemia I had different uh, guests from all over the world people teaching um, uh, customary South African law, people teaching uh, procedural American law, people teaching um, Sharia from the uh, the uh, Dubai, yeah. uh, people from Germany, England, etc., talking about their own legal traditions, and those uh, those first interviews I did, which were live interviews for that uh, student class, were recorded. And I've been using them since then, so I used them again already. Record interviews, uh, what we did uh, first, and in the second, the second time I used them, I was able to pause the recording to discuss with the students, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, there are huge advantages. And now that you talk about technology and diplomacy, I would like to take this conversation to something that I also do, which is commercial arbitration, as you know. And, and virtual hearings, the, the same questions arise for arbitration as those that you mentioned for diplomacy. And, but so far, I believe that is working very well. I had already uh, virtual hearings as a lawyer and as an arbitrator. And the money and the time save is, 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 is is considerable. Yeah. And something which is very positive. Of course, we have all those differential elements of the body language uh, of the uh, technological um, uh, problems that sometimes we face while uh, you know broadcasting or or connecting to the internet
1: yeah they're still there
0: (laughs) but but i i think the advantages overweight uh, the disadvantages so i think uh, it's it's a good uh, in a way it's one of the positive Uh, things that happen in many legal professions and many legal fields
1: yeah I mean I I think it's good I don't think it should ever replace it just as right now we're having this conversation uh, I don't think I can fully migrate to virtual ways of doing this podcast because for me like still the personal connection for me is vital and I use virtual platforms pretty much all day long but I don't think that they're fully there
0: Oh yes, I agree with you. I agree. Uh, this um, this pandemic is is like being all the time within a hospital, right? We have to have the mask and etc. and and we can, and the virtual has has been the bridge or, or the way to steering, to to stay in contact with many persons and keep working, but the uh, you know the personal encounters. Uh, the live discussions, pres- presential discussions in person are are, I think I I valued them more than before.
1: Yeah, we we took them for granted.
0: Exactly, yeah. we took them for granted, and actually the handshake is is something I miss. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and in Mexico they hugs because many people hogs. Uh, yeah. When uh hug when when they meet yeah.
1: And you so you've had like a pretty pretty broad career you've done you've written you, you've worked in Switzerland you're a professor you're an arbitrator um, when you were studying law and after all this experience what were some of the things that perhaps you would have wanted to know back then when you were studying that you perhaps didn't know and you just learned later
0: well there there are many things that I came to lay to learn later on that I that I think, um, could have been done differently, but I don't think they have affected my career, and, and I and I feel lucky for that, because, um, I was while I was a student, I was not advised. I I had no you know a lawyer relative to tell me you know, Uh, what what I should be doing. Uh, I just follow my heart and the things that interested me and I keep doing them. But for example, uh, later on, uh, I learned about rankings in the universities. And now I, and uh, for example, at the time I did my master at the University of Liverpool, I was unaware of the rankings. And there were some universities that were higher ranked that offered me uh, a place. And at the end of the day, I, I chose, without knowing, one with a lesser ranking or, or, or a lower place in the ranking because they gave me a scholarship.
1: Yeah.
0: Probably at that time, I may have done the financial sacrifice and choose the better ranking. But that hasn't, I don't think that that hasn't affected my career. Um, the rest uh, that happened, I've been so fortunate because uh, I, I am doing what I love. And I do something which is not always easy to do and is to combine um, a tenure chip professor um, position with uh with the law practice and in particular international practice and being based in a city which is not an international capital, you know. Uh, I mean, Guadalajara is not Mexico City, obviously it's not Geneva, it's not Paris, it's not London and still I've been able to keep in touch with many people I met in the past and make new connections from people that are in those places where it is easier to get involved in international aspects, cases. So I think that's a privilege because I am in the city, I I grew up uh, with my family and still uh, keeping an international profile. Yeah, I mean, I
1: I agree with you. Um, But for example, like right now that you're talking about networks, that was something that I didn't know. I didn't know the value of networks when I was studying. I thought that you are a good lawyer by just like studying, reading uh, and doing that. And I completely disregarded networks. That's the networks to me is one of the most important things that you obtain when you go to a a top, an elite uh, law school because you have the network of many lawyers before you and many lawyers after you and that's probably why the value of the rankings because of the networks not because of anything else probably the teaching would be the same in either university but I would have wanted someone to tell me like focus on networks that may be more important than you think
0: yes uh, yes uh, there, is, there are two things I would like to mention on this, on this comment uh, Rodolfo one is uh, yes prestige is very important and um, personal brand as well so um, after I did this master in in Liverpool I I also did a master in the University of California in Berkeley which is a, a very well known um, school my, right
1: My father went to to Berkeley I felt the discussion between him and myself
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah Stanford Berkeley yes <laughs> local rivals Yeah and 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 I love it. I love it. But also it was some of the things that I did because later on I was aware of of, of, of the reputation and value that some places bring to your career. And the other thing is that marketing has always been very difficult and personal brand building is something not easy to do. And with technology and platforms or applications like LinkedIn, it has become easy, easier, but also difficult. Yeah. Because there is a lot of content and there is uh, people uh, afford you or give you just one second of attention of what you are doing. And, and, and yes, um, technology is there. But I think that personal encounters, personal media are also becoming very important uh, today to build your, your network and, and brand. Yes,
1: personal brand. And uh, regarding that comment, I think that the Universidad Panamericana or the Universidad Panamericana has always been well placed in Mexico, but I think that now, uh, I don't know if they're like focused on that, they're putting a lot of attention on the alumni abroad, because there's a lot of value in having a Mexican contact you in Geneva or anywhere, uh, and, and I do see that. Uh, are you aware that this is like a specific area where the university wants to excel?
0: Yes, I think so, and it it, it came um, as it came naturally because, as you know, the university is 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 new in a way when compared with with um, European university. It's only fifty years old, and uh, it needed so- these years to, to start having alumni placed in important positions, mm. right? Uh, influential alumni, and um, obviously they they know that. The prestige or reputation of their alumni or alumni, uh, inf- or also nourish or affects their own reputation. That's why they they make this effort to to stay in contact with them, to uh, keep them close, to keep collaborating with them, etc. etc. And yes, the universities, since I would say seven or eight years ago, started this. Um, investment, big investment also on, on scholars and professors from uh, international ones from different parts of the world uh, uh, focus on research because they realized that uh, the rankings, one of the elements in the rankings was um, the amount and quality of the publications they had, yes
1: and um, i think another thing that i want to hear your comments on your views is um, you wear many hats how do you find the time to do all of these things
0: well uh, i think that uh, while i am wearing a hat uh, and i am working on that under that hat in a way i am also collecting materials for my different role so for example when i am writing perhaps this is the most important activity that I have writing legal scholarship I am in a way preparing to teach right because I use those materials I do I I can also um, convey share all the new things that are going on in my field to the students I can apply them with my teams competing and also this uh this interaction of ideas of of uh, new learning etc helps me in my arbitration uh, practice because i know also what is the state of the law right uh, and this helps a lot every lawyer in their practice at the same time the practical skills that i develop in the real world helps me to teach from a, my students and to write from a practical point of view and perspective and i have some of uh, some kind of a motto uh, i can help to convert sophisticated legal theory into effective legal practice mm. and that's what my three different hats i have uh, interrelate with each other they nourish each other they cross fertilize each other I see. And, and 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 yes that's it um Uh, that maybe that's the only reason why I can keep doing the three at the same time.
1: Well, Edgardo, it has been really great talking to you and visiting my old uh, alma mater. Thank you for your
0: time. Thank you, Rodolfo. This is your alma mater, but also your home. You are welcome at Universidad Panamericana in Guadalajara every time, you want.
1: Thank you very much. See you.